This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, once again, everybody. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. You know what? Thank you so much for coming along this inspirational journey with me every single week. I can say, and I'm very proud of this, that just about every person we've profiled on the podcast has one characteristic in common, persistence, the refusal to give up. But today, I'm pretty sure you're about to meet a man who wins the never-say-die trophy for persistence. His tent company that he founded in 1995 went public in the year 2000, pretty much the day before the dot-com bubble gave a death rattle and turned belly up. A year later, he watched through the window of his headquarters as the Twin Towers collapsed in the 9-11 terror attacks. And with his stock price at one point down to seven cents a share, he began crawling his way back, but then got gut-punched in the financial crisis. Again, he managed to build back his business, only to face the black hole of COVID. But not only is Rob Locasio still standing, he is sprinting, dare we say, with the wind at his back. We welcome live person founder and CEO, Rob Locasio. Great to have you, Rob. Rob, what is in the water that you drink that you are so persistent and able to just wobble, but you never fall down. Well, Liz, thank you for having me on the show. And I've never gotten an introduction like that. I'm, I'm just so excited about myself for the first time. So I, you deserve I it. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, I just grew up, um, you know, I grew up from a line of entrepreneurs, my grandparents, my dad, everyone in my life. And, and it was really old school, you know, hard work. I saw a lot of ups and downs and I just got sort of schooled, uh, you know, in the, in the way you build a business is you never quit. And in your, uh, you know, your hardest days is the days you learn and you don't quit on those days. You know, if you're going to quit, quit at the top, but never quit when you're, when you're challenged. So I, I just kind of grew up like that and I don't know any better. And, uh, you know, I took that energy and, uh, and that journey uh, which I think is very different. You always feel like entrepreneurs in this day and age, have, the reference point is like Facebook. It's like rags to riches to billionaire and happens in a, you know 10 years. The reality is most entrepreneurs take a journey and that journey is really phenomenal uh, if you're, if you take it, but it's, it's a long journey and it's, it's all, it's just ups and downs like life. It just reflects life. You just said something so interesting. If you're going to quit, quit at the top. Don't quit when times are tough. I, I love this message because what we do on this particular podcast is we, we only tell aspirational stories where at the end of it, I want listeners to say to themselves, wait a minute, this guy fought through way worse than things I'm facing or what I have faced in the past, and he is still doing great. He's figured it out. And so what's my excuse? So I'm really, really happy that you just kind of crystallized that. Okay, we're done. Um, no, I got to hear your story because live person, for those of you who don't know, 
is a very fascinating company that now is in what's called conversational commerce, which is, I don't know, Rob, I don't want to diminish this, but a fancy way of saying basically AI, artificial intelligence call centers where people aren't stuck on hold forever. And just because there isn't a human on the other line, they can still get a lot done. What we do is, uh, you know, we created a platform that's called the Conversational Cloud and it enables the largest brands in the world, so Delta Airlines, T-Mobile, to create a different consumer uh, customer care experience. You don't get put on hold. You know, I, I don't, that technology just, it's, it's old, it's broken. Uh, so we believe that you should be using something that you're using in your daily life, which is messaging. You're messaging your friends and family on iMessage and Facebook Messenger. And we created technology that allows you to use that type of platform to message a brand and then have a conversation either with humans or automations. And what's happening now because of COVID, a lot of these contact centers are, have been sort of shut down and now the rush to automation has happened. But you know, the, the vision is really, we're gonna live in a world of speaking to machines, speaking to devices. And those devices, those machines will help us solve problems you just mentioned COVID. Boy, I'll tell you, when people went into lockdown, they immediately jumped on the phone. They had to ask for forbearance in their mortgages. They couldn't pay on time. They were stuck on hold at banks for hours. I heard all kinds of anecdotal stories about how frustrating it was. Airlines, people were trying to get refunds for travel. I had actually called almost immediately March, I want to say 12th, to cancel my trip to Vail. And thankfully, it was early enough and I was able to do it. But from that minute on, I heard so much frustration on behalf of people who just could not get through. So in a way, there's a silver lining to what we've all been enduring, at least to your company, Live Person. Yeah, I mean, we that those first weeks were just uh, extraordinary. A couple of reasons. One is the contact centers around the world, these voice contact centers, uh, you know, where people sit three feet from each other, right, got shut down and, and the agents were sent home. And in many cases, in many places in the world, those agents cannot take phone calls from their homes. So they don't have broadband connections to access systems, things like that. So what happened was there was a huge rush to digital and to messaging and to AI and the things we do and so we, we had a 40% increase in volume within four or five weeks. That's tens of millions of new conversations that happened wow. on our platform because all of a sudden the big brands were like, we, we need to keep servicing our customers. They can't call us now and get to us. It could be a one, two hour, four hour wait. So we're going to go live with your technology and expand it even more. So we had this massive surge uh, in those first couple of weeks and we continue to grow because like most digital platforms, now everyone's very focused on them. They're, they're breaking the, the, uh, uh, you know, the chains of the past, which in our case was voice, legacy, 1-800 numbers and, and hold times. Those are, are going away. I have to tell you, as I looked at your company, and again, you are one of the longest I'm still standing tech CEOs who came of age during the dot-com bubble or right as it burst. I do want to hear your story because we've got a lot of people who are dealing with real adversity and you are a guy who's made it through the fire multiple times, by the way, but take me back to your IPO day on April 7th of the year 2000. It was not a happy day. 
Well, yeah, it was, it was a very strange, first of all, when I was about 13 years old, I went to the library where I grew up on Long Island and I picked a book out of the, out of the bookshelf. You have books and dating myself there, but you actually took, picked a book out and, and I picked a book out of, uh, about taking a, being a public company. And I read this book cover to cover and I was so fascinated because I was like, wow, like being a public company, I didn't even know what it meant, by the way. I had no idea. But as I read, I read this, these are the best of the best companies in the world. So I had this dream since I was a, a kid to do it. And I, and I got to do it at a young age. It was about 32 when I, when we, when we went public on April 7th, but it, it wasn't quite what I expected. You know, we went, we went out the door. We actually had to cut our offering in half. So we were supposed to raise 60 million. We raised 30 million. Uh, there, I think there was 15 or 20 of us pricing that week and only three or four of us went public because the market was collapsing as we were going. So I had a very hollow feeling in my stomach, which was I knew we were at the end of the dot-com cycle. And when we went out public, although I celebrated that day, the next day we went right back to work and started to think about what are we going to do with this company because it's over. The dot-com days are over. I could see it. Mm. And then I, we worked on now a plan to survive. You know, it was, it was a very, I wish it was better, but it was, it was like most of what I think, like not everything, you know, you have these dreams of the day and sometimes they're not quite what you think, but. Oh, uh, but but that doesn't mean that, that you can just say, well, that was that I, I give up. And in fact, you did the complete opposite. Uh, your stock was around $8, right? When it eight priced. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, $8. Okay. It went down to. 40 cents per share one year later and then that got even worse yeah on the, on the 9-11 we we uh around seven cents a share was that day so we went from a 300 million dollar market cap we were we were two million in, in revenue 20 million in losses when we went public that was, they gave us a 300 million dollar market cap which was strange back then but that's what happened and then we went straight down to a two million dollar market cap mm. or seven cents a share and uh yeah, and so it, I had to manage through that and with my team. And, uh, and then we went into a restructuring at the beginning of 2001, which, which was, uh, and, then, and then we got hit with 9-11, but we fired about 140 out of 180 people in one day. And uh, I just, you know, there's nothing that prepares you for that. We were in survival mode um, and we just did it because I didn't want to mess around with it. I was scared of going bankrupt. I, I lost my first company. And because I lost my first company, I didn't want to lose a second company. I had a pretty deep scar around losing and failure. And, and I didn't want to go experience that again. I, you know, I slept on a couch when I started this company for two years, and I wasn't going back to that couch. That was my number one goal. And you didn't because years later, spoiler alert, I mean, I just checked your stock today. It's $61 a share. So you are the survivor. But talk to me about what it is that helped you fight through some really, really big moments of adversity. What's in it? How do you put together that chemistry to keep you going? You know, it's, it's a, like 9-11, I mean, it was, uh, we watched the towers come down. Mm. And, uh, and that was right after we went through these, this firing of people. I remember, I just remember that feeling of, uh, you know, I was, I mean, I, I was, I was, can't explain, I was sad and I was uh, scared. And 
you know, I, I guess I just somehow feel, feel, I've always felt that I had this purpose to continue. And, and as long as I can continue forward, good things would happen. And so, I don't know, I, I just had, like I said at the beginning, that I, I had the sense that I can fight through this. I have a good team. We'll work together and, and don't quit. And, you know, my, my grandfather, my grandfather, who was an entrepreneur, and uh, unfortunately his company never really made it, but he, was, he made handbags uh, before the war, for World War II. And, and he always told me, though, as a kid, are you a follower? And he would just ask me this all the time. Every time I saw him, and he I pretty much raised me because my parents were working. He, he, are you a follower? Are you? Did you go to, when I went to school? Did you follow today? I said no, Grandpa. I didn't. And that stuck with me. Of like, I always looked at quitting as following. I always looked at like, you got it. If you want to take your own journey, you've got to work through the pain. And the pain I found out. And this is because I, I uh, when I lost my first company, I went through some. I worked with this uh, psychologist to work through, you know, losing that company. I, I worked through and he, he told me the pain will be instructive. The pain will be instructive. You know, listen to it. A lot of people, when they experience loss and pain, you go to, you can take drugs and alcohol and you get, you start to, you want to distract yourself through the pain. And, you know, and he, and he said, just stay focused on the pain mm. and listen to it. And it will instruct you what to do next. And and don't try to cover it up. Don't try to avoid it. Face it. And Absorb it. Happened. So that, that's what's happened in my life is I've, I faced a lot of adversity and pain. And I'll, I just go into a period of being quiet versus trying to distract myself. Sort of absorb that pain and then use it almost to rebuild the cellular structure of what you know you're able to accomplish, at least in your mind. I mean, this is a classic case of you can dream it, you can do it, because going back to 13 years old, when you picked up that book, fast forward decades, and you've done it. I want to bring us to this year. This year, we're dealing with this global health crisis. How has the pandemic impacted you and your business I know that you lost one of your employees to the coronavirus. Yeah. So, you know, when this started, because I'd been through the dot-com implosion, uh, 9-11, and then the financial crisis, I, I have um, a sense of these, I call them, their macro, you know, impacts. They're things that are outside of our control. We, we, don't, we didn't do anything to have this happen, but it's impacting us massively. And it's usually impacting society at large. And so the first thing I did is I sat with my leadership team and said, you know, we have to lead with empathy. And it's, 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 really, it's really important in these times because what I found, and I found this because of the experiences I had, is that leading during these times, usually the people you work with, your employees, are very scared because the uncertainty is outside of their control. And so they look to usually the company. They look to the people that – have structure in their life and they what they want from you is they want you to listen what they don't want from you is to come off the mountain and tell them what to do and what i what i said is we've got to listen to what what they are feeling are they scared are they having challenges at home because they got kids and they're trying to you know there's all this stuff that there's a basket of stuff that happened that was very uncertain and it continues today and then we lost, you know, it was early in the, in the weeks of COVID, a 23-year-old employee named Wei Fung, 
and he was an engineer and he's from China. And uh, I got a call at about one o'clock in the afternoon that he died. We knew he went to the hospital, but four days later, no pre-existing conditions, he's dead. And, and I said, okay, let's, let's talk to his mother and father. And they're in China. So myself, his team leader, um, the head of that, that group, we got on a phone with a translator and we spoke to his mother, fa- mother and father at 9 a.m. their time. And, and uh, that's the first time I had to talk to an employee's um, parents about that their son is gone. And, you know, the next thing we did was just told them, we'll take care of everything. And uh, we took care of everything, their, the funeral, because they can't come here. They, can't, they couldn't see the kid. It was their only son. So, you know, it's once again, that impact on people he worked with, on the, on the company as a whole, that's a real impact. And that's something now we had, I had to, and the, the, the team had to think about, like, how are we going to manage through that? We did a, a memorial service for him um, with everybody in the company. So virtually we couldn't be together, you know, that which just makes it very hard. We can't physically be together and, and see each other, but uh, you work through it. And um, in the end, you know, it's, we, 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 there's, a, there's lessons in there and, and uh, we were a stronger company for it. And I'm proud of the people in the company who have um, not gotten distracted by all the uncertainty, but have stayed focused on having one of the best years in our history because the world needs us. You know, the world needs us. But we won't forget, you know, we lost an employee. That's, that's a terrible thing. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm sensing that you lead with your heart and not just your head or thinking about the wallet of the company. It's not just profits. It's definitely focus on humanity. And I, I, I dare say that is part of why you are still going strong today. Let's talk about some of your customers that you do uh, work with. You've landed some biggies, Home Depot, Chipotle, T-Mobile, Delta Airlines, David's Bridal, Tamara Mellon, GM Financial. Um, you know, what do you hope you're able to do with these brands to engage and connect with customers? You know, I, I, I fundamentally believe that the, the customer care model could be a, a wonderful experience for us all. And it's mostly a very horrifying experience. And our customers are really the ones trying to change the game. They want to create a way to engage their consumers, to stay connected with their consumers, to provide you know, a, a deeper level of conversations with those consumers and they have a vision that they can create something very different than has been up to now, which is once again, call us, we be put on hold. You know, Everything got uh, 
like almost customer care got commoditized. You know, we don't feel special anymore when we go to our banks. We don't feel special anymore uh, with our insurance companies, with buying a car. You know, we don't feel special. And and the, we have to change that. And, and I think, you know, that that's our vision is that we can do that with technology. So we're bringing what I call love, uh, you know, tenderness, uh, inclusiveness, trust, plus algorithms. And, if, and that's and that's and that's really what conversational commerce is about. Like, but we're not being big tech. You know, I think we're fighting. We're going to fight the. We're going to fight the, the stuff that's out there now, and we're going to change the game. And we're working with these great customers, like say Chipotle. Look, Chipotle got really during obviously during COVID, people didn't want to come inside uh, the stores. So we created an automation called Pepper, and you can message Pepper. You can create your burrito, and you go to the door, and they hand it to you. I've done it many times since you, I had no idea that you guys did that. That that's is us. the best system. And I'm talking early on, they got it right. That's right. That's right. So we, we're doing stuff with retailers like Lowe's and stores. We're testing things in a store to have virtualized uh, store reps because, you know, people don't want to have a face-to-face interaction, but we got we to gotta keep commerce going. You know, we just don't stop here. And, and everyone's sitting and focused on the negative, like, I just found like the world at large is talking about like, we got to get back to work. We got to get back to work. And it's such a, it's such a false hope. We are at work and, and there's a lot of opportunity and there are, unfortunately there are 20 million people, whatever unemployed and we got to get them back to work, but we're going to do it by bringing these technologies so that they can be in a different place with, with how they're working. They're not going to be sitting in a store anymore. They're not going to be serving at a restaurant but they can be part of what we're trying to do today. We need people to create these conversations. I mean, we need more people now than ever to create automated conversations, to work with this technology, to make it so it's pervasive. And so there, there's, there's a world out there that can really embrace the change. And that, that's what we're in the middle of. Well, change is inevitable. Um, growth is not. You can either decide to go along with change and grow or you can be left behind. I know this may sound strange that I'm asking somebody who's in technology in many ways, a very, very obviously smart guy when it comes to all things like algorithms and artificial intelligence, but is there hope for people out there who can't code or don't want to be an engineer? And I say that because I look at my own two kids and they are more liberal arts and they are more not that into that kind of thing like robotics and all I cover these days are electronic vehicle engineering companies and all the high tech and big tech. And I worry, I worry. So to ask a guy like you, is there a place for people like that in the future? You need to well, tell me what you think. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I was English literature and uh, in business in college. I mean, I don't have, I learned to code. I'm not a coder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, but I find technology is a very creative thing. Like it's like art. It, it, it's a creative force that you can use. So it, I don't believe you have to code. I mean, I, I coded for a little bit, but I, I don't code, but I have a vision <laughs> about, about the world I live in. So I don't think like, you know, obviously I have to make friends with coders all through my life. I had a, you know, like, especially when I got started, like I had to make friends with people that are coding. So I'm like, I have this thing in my head and I needed it. I needed to code it. But I, I don't, I think create, it's about creativity and, it's like any creative force, whether it's music or art, 
technology is the same thing. It's you, you have a vision, which I believe is given to you. That vision, you can, in some cases, you're, you're the output of that and the, the way you manifest is through technology. So I would say there's a lot of hope. As a matter of fact, I mean, I, I graduated during the recession in 1990 and it was tough getting a job and everything like that. And I got a job for a short period of time. Then I was fired, and because they need to rest- to downsize the company, and and that that made me want to go build a business. And right now, there are a lot of people that are, are thinking about building businesses. And our country uh, was founded on this principle that small businesses and people with dreams can make it work. And and that's what you have to do. And, and there's also a bunch of people who are in bullshit jobs. I just read, by the way, I use that phrase because I read this book called Bullshit Jobs recently. And, it, and it's that they're in jobs that they don't love. They don't yeah. love their jobs. And if they just would just take, leave, quit, and, and go start something. I'll I tell you a, a funny story. I, I met a woman who was a banker uh, about five or six years ago. She, I was speaking at a conference and talking about being an entrepreneur. And she came up to me and said, I was just so inspired by your talk. And I said, what do you do? She goes, I'm in banking. I've been banking for 20 years. She didn't, she's done very well. She goes, I hate it. I hate it. I said, what do you love to do? She goes, I love to bake bread. I said, well, then open a bakery. She goes, I can't open a bakery. I can, I, you, know, you got to make money. I said, somebody's making a lot of money opening a bakery. <laughs> like they're very wealthy. So don't worry about that. Money follows with you fulfilling your purpose in life. I never started this for money. I never cared about it because I never had it. You know, obviously now it's different because of mm-hmm. what, what's been created, but I'm saying like, go create your bakery, find your bakery. Everyone has a bakery inside of them. Everyone has the ba- the thing that they want to be. They want to cook, they want whatever it is. And you will, and the, the brain says, well, I can't be a writer. I can't be a baker. I can't be. Yes, you can. Absolutely. Everyone can be fine. It sucks sometimes, great, but you'll find you'll never have a boring day and you'll never have feel like you're in a bullshit job. That's what you want in life. Warren Buffett often says, you want to pick a job that you would love so much you'd do it for free. That's Tap right. dancing to work. And I find that obviously so fascinating because my own father, who was a surgeon, said, make your passion your profession. And then you will be happy and the money does eventually come. But I just quoted my dad and Warren Buffett. Who do you think and who do you look up to when it comes to business leaders, CEOs, or people whom you've met along your, your journey? I mean, I grew up, you know, when, when I started with the, the, orig- the, the tech, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Scott McNeely and and Larry Ellison, and sure. they they were inspirational to me because they were warriors. They still are, you know. And some most of them, are obviously, they're, they're they're retired, but um, but they were warriors. But they had a coat, and they competed with a coat. And I always admired them because I felt like they they just want they really had an impact on society in many ways, and they fought hard for that. And, and they had this very this coat. I remember Scott McNeely during the dot-com said, you know, uh, this is, uh, hope is not a strategy. I remember him saying that because sometimes I would say like during the dot-com, I was like, I hope we can make it. And I remember saying hope is not a strategy. And these guys were, they were, they were warriors and I, I admired them. And they're the ones who got me into business. I remember the first time I went to Silicon Valley, it was, um, 
when I just started the company, I flew out there. I'd never been to California and I was, I was 27 and I, I just drove around. I was like, my man, I'm like, this is like, it's just dreamy land. It's just dreams here. And it, it just, it just got under my skin. So I sort of admired that group. You know, I really admire my father, um, my grandfather, um, you know, both my grandfathers were entrepreneur, entrepreneurs and, but, and my father, you know, he just, you know, he, he unfortunately had a heart attack when he was in his 50. He lived until he was 80 something a couple of years ago, he passed away. But, you know, he taught me a lot at dinner. Uh, you know, he's a, he was an old school fighter. And so I just, I guess I just learned from my family. And then I looked at some of these other people um, that I just admired, uh, you know, it's different now. Tech, unfortunately, the leadership in tech is very different now and it has a different set of principles, but you know, we'll change that. You know, we'll end up changing that. All right. So what is next for you, Rob? So, you know, I, I, I really have this vision that there needs to be this, this uh, conversational uh, AI that is yours. It's not like, like an Alexa, but not Alexa, uh, but you're, you're conversing with it. It's yours. And, and over time, uh, you have a high trust with it. And so we are, we're, we're now in a few weeks going to put out the door, this thing called Bella and Bella will be this AI that you'll converse with. And we're starting it in the banking uh, area that you'll be able to do banking through it and, and work with Bella and she'll help you or he'll help you. you it's up to you and basically fulfill your banking intent. So there are things in the platform also for you to, uh, do things with your money to help the world and help others. And so we, we're, we're building something, I think, pretty special. Like I said, starting with banking, it's got a larger vision, but there, I believe there needs to be an AI out there that we trust, um, that over time we own, that we feel like there's no two Bellas alike. So we have a big vision for this, and, and it's something we're putting out. It's, it's going to be testing, a lot of learning, uh, but you know, I think we've got a good vision around uh, how we can create an AI that will help the world because everything you hear about AI is about taking jobs and, and hurting humanity because that's a West coast perspective. You know, that's Elon Musk's perspective. You know, the existential threat to humanity is AI. I see it the other way. The, a great love for humanity could be AI if it's used right and it's created by a diverse group of people. So that that's what we're trying to do. Can you name it Liz instead of Bella though? I can, but, but my daughter's name is Mirabella. Oh, <laughs> okay. You know, I was going to say, you better name it Liz, but I'll, I'll forgive you for that one. Well, Rob, uh, you are an incredible example to her. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me here. It's been fun. And I hope it's been a wonderful experience for all of you guys to every single week hear a different story that we bring to you. And uh, again, this is... This is something that has become a huge passion of my own and of my producer, Tanya Joseph. We are looking for the stories that will really hopefully change your life and make you realize there is a bakery within you. There is an artistic element within you or whatever your passion is, go for it. Life is way too short not to aim high so thank you for listening and as always monday through friday 3 p.m eastern if you want to watch not just listen to me it's the clavin countdown on fox business have a great day 
It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.